My name's Will. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to, to be here with you today. Um, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I have the privilege of week in and week out uh, leading worship. And I just want to say a couple things about that because I love to lead worship. I love to lead worship here at Crossroads. And I just want to give a huge shout out to the bands and the volunteers that we have uh, leading worship. I think they deserve a round of applause because, yeah. But also, but also I want to thank, I want to thank you guys too, because there'd be nothing like worse in my mind than me being up here and singing and leading worship and you guys just like crossed armed, like whatever, like sipping coffee, like next, next song, you know? So at, at Crossroads, this isn't true about everywhere, but at Crossroads, worship isn't just a pre-sermon and post-sermon like ramp up, right? Worship is an integral part of who we are as a people, who we are as a church. It's gonna be happening, whether you like it or not, for, for eternity, all right? We're gonna be in heaven joining with the angels, giving glory and worship to God, and I'm excited about that. And you guys give us a little picture of what that's like each week, and I really appreciate that. Today, I'm putting the guitar aside. I get to be the one that walks us through the text today, which is something else that I love to do because... My life is a testimony of how the word of God can take a absolute punk kid and turn him into a punk adult, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but just like my life has been changed and shaped and molded by the word of God. And I believe strongly this morning that if you submit your life to like wanting to know who God is more and opening up his word, that same power is available this morning. Um, we're going to be sticking with our uh, summer series, which has been the Beatitudes, which are found in uh, Matthew's gospel in the fifth chapter. And normally what I would like to do is kind of do like a little recap. You know, we're, we're, we've made our way through some of the Beatitudes. Let's take a, a pause and say, where are we at? But if you were here last, what, last week, you know that Dan Mike kind of stole that from me and did a recap of where we're at so far. And I was mad at first, but then I was actually like listening to a sermon going, wow, that was really helpful, actually, as he started to unpack what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He helped because these blessings, they're not meant to be taken as just like one sentence, like lifted out of the Bible and preached on a Sunday. You know, Jesus said them right in a row. And these sentences, rather, they're supposed to build upon each other and help us shape our understanding of the type of people that will be found in this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It's worth repeating this morning that these blessings, they're not prescriptive, but they're descriptive. You know, they're not saying like, okay, if you can just muster up enough poverty of spirit, then you'll get the kingdom of heaven. But rather, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is here. And the people who are gonna receive it are the type of people who just carry a humility and a proper sense of self. They know who they are, which is something that's either really good news or really scary news. It's good news if you can look at that list and maybe like find yourself in there somehow. And not in a prideful way, not saying like, oh good, I'm really mournful, glad I can be counted. But like just in a, in a humble way of saying, I've had these experiences in my life and they, they've shaped me then it's good news to say that, man, this meekness that I always thought was a huge character flaw in me is someday gonna be met with an inheritance from the Father. And it's scary news if you, if you can't really see yourself in these, in these uh, descriptions. 
It's something that hit me a few years ago as I was reading uh, my way through the Bible. I get to the New Testament. It was such a relief to be in the words of Jesus and his story and his life. And five chapters into it, I read this part from the Beatitudes and I'm struck with this realization that like, okay, this is not me. Has anyone read the Sermon on the Mountain and been like, who is Jesus even talking about? Because it's not, not me. And, you know, uh, I've learned in my life that when you find those places in the Bible, you should take, take that reality to God and, and just make it known to him that you know about it, okay? So I, I took that reality, okay? God, this is not lining up with who I am in my life, but it's, it's clearly what I'm supposed to be running after. And so will you, will you help me? Will you lead me in that? And as I prayed that a few mornings in a row, uh, one morning I felt just the Holy Spirit kind of like, nudging me to read a chapter in Jeremiah, which if you know me at all, okay, just one of the baseline facts about me is that I'm on the Enneagram, I'm a seven. Anyone else a seven? All right, I see you. Well, everyone else, sevens like to avoid pain at all costs, right? Like we don't like wade into any hard situation. We just want to have fun, all right? And so going to the weeping prophet for life advice was not really something that I was into, but it was the Holy Spirit pushing me and saying, okay, just learn from me. And so I opened my Bible to uh, chapter 18 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you know the Old Testament, he's a guy that, he's called a prophet. He hears from the Lord and then he tells the people what God is saying or what God is like. And chapter 18, we, sell, we see uh, God tell Jeremiah, okay, Jer, go down the road and go to the potter's house. And Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he just like watches. And God says, just watch and I'm gonna tell you something with what you see. And Jeremiah sees a man sitting at a potter's wheel. And his, his hands are, are, are shaping this pot. And as Jeremiah is watching, the pot just in a split second, which can happen so easily, it just gets wobbles off place. And the potter stops the wheel and he's sitting there just with this mess of clay in his hands. It, two seconds ago is this beautiful pot. And just unfazed, the potter takes the clay, puts it back into a ball, Recenters it on the wheel, gets his hands wet, and, and gets the wheel spinning, and he puts his hands to the clay, and, and he raises up just this completely new pot, totally unlike the one before. And, and God says to Jeremiah uh, in chapter 5, or in verse 5, Can I not do with you as this potter does with the clay? Like clay in the hand of a potter, so are you in my hand. God is using Jeremiah to show the people that he is a skilled craftsman, shaping kingdoms and nations and people as seems best to him. And God wants his people to know that. He wants Jeremiah to take this message and to make it known that God, listen, he's a potter. He can shape your life. And that story from the Old Testament, it brought me a little bit of freedom that morning to not have to strive to be all these different things, but rather to trust that there's a potter in this world that sees me and knows me, knows my heart. As I move toward him, surrender to him, he can get his hands wet and interact with just the mess and the dirt of my life and shape it as what seems best to him. To trust that he's the one that's gonna shape each one of us, move us closer 
to that type of person that Jesus is describing as he sits on that hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, teaching the sermon to his friends. And I genuinely believe that that same thing can be true for me again today, but for us, every person in this room, that we can submit our lives to God and watch him shape and mold it. And so as we read uh, Matthew 5 right now, I just want to remind us, okay, with that in mind, let's keep our eyes on the potter, okay? So let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they're gonna inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're gonna be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they're gonna be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You guys can have a seat. So just over halfway through these blessings, and I must say that I've been slightly caught off guard by the verse that I was asked to preach on. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You know, this week as I was thinking about, like, I might be the least merciful person I know. And it's just kind of funny that I'm getting to preach on this text, you know. Um, Really for two reasons it stood out to me. One is just because, um, I mentioned it before, but taking one verse out of the Bible, it's hard sometimes. You end up wanting to make it say something that it doesn't say. Or you, you tend to want to take all these preconceived things that you already know about the verse and just say, yep, I've read that before. I know what that means. Also, uh, other Beatitudes have this like, if you're this, then you get this. And they're often different things. If you're meek, you inherit the earth. You can talk about meekness. You can talk about what it means to inherit the earth. But the the reward for the merciful person is not another word I can elaborate on. It's the same word. It's just mercy again. The second thing that kind of like made me hesitant about it is just that the fact that mercy is such a huge part of who God is and the story of God. This morning, I'm gonna be making a big deal out of the mercy of God, not to diminish other attributes, but rather to highlight this amazing quality. Mercy, it's part of the makeup of God. It's part of the very being of God. When God reveals himself to the world, he makes sure to include that he's merciful. He doesn't have to do that. Yeah, he's all powerful. Yes, God is eternal. Yes, he's all knowing. He's good. He's loving. And God is also merciful. We see this important quality when uh, Moses has this conversation with God. Moses says, God, I know you spoke to me out of the burning bush. You've told me that you're the I am. You're using me now to go and talk to the people. But I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to know what you're like. And God says to Moses, okay, listen, I want that too. You can't see me though. But you can know me and you can know what I'm like. This is what I'm like. This is who I am. The Lord, the Lord the gracious and merciful God, showing our slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the God that Moses was walking with. This is the God that this morning we're singing our songs to. This merciful and gracious God. 
And when, when I read that and was reminded of that, just hesitation fell away. I, I, I wanted to dive in. I wanted to uncover more information about this storehouse of mercy. God, this morning, is merciful and gracious. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, and he wants us to see that, just as Jeremiah saw it. So let's dive in. Blessed are the merciful. The first thing that I just want to do is look at that word, mercy. What does that word mean? It's a word that, I don't know, you've probably used in the last day as you're praying or talking to someone else about God. We use that word all the time. But I, I just ask myself, like, do I know what that means? Do I know what mercy means? As I bring it up with other people and ask them, what do you think mercy means? A lot of times this other word comes up, the word grace. We saw how God revealed himself to Moses. I'm a merciful and gracious God. It's, they go hand in hand so much that this little couplet has developed where people say that mercy is not getting what I do deserve and grace is getting what I don't deserve. Has anyone ever heard that before? Okay, for me... That seems helpful at first, but when I start to kind of tear that thing apart, it, it actually creates a lot of confusion. And maybe it's just, again, how my brain works. But with that logic, you end up defining grace as mercy and mercy as grace. Like if I'm before a judge and the judge is like, dude, you're 100% guilty. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And the judge says, but we're going to let it slide. Well, then I'm receiving something that I don't deserve. Where which, no, I'm, I'm not getting something I do deserve, which is jail time. I'm not getting that jail time. Which the same situation, I'm before the judge. Yeah, you're guilty, but we're gonna offer you forgiveness. We're gonna give you forgiveness instead. Well, then I'm getting something I don't deserve, which is that forgiveness. So the, the not getting what I do deserve and getting what I, I know, it's very confusing. It's just like a loop. I'm stuck in this loop going over and over and over. Mercy is grace, grace is mercy. But I just want to say it right now, that mercy and grace, they're not the same thing. That grace, it is this, it's, un, it's undeserved merit. It's undeserved goodness from God. And they are the, the same, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. Grace is goodness shown to the undeserving. But what is mercy? Mercy. Now, I'm not the kind of person that would like normally just run everything to the Hebrew and the Greek because I really believe that for the last 2,000 years, people have been trying to give us a really good translation of the Bible into English. And so we can trust that. But also, sometimes just knowing a word or two is really helpful in understanding who God is. And it's 2019, okay? I'm not a scholar. I'm not like studying Hebrew and Greek, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you just go on Google and type in what is mercy in Greek. And you get the answer, and it gives you a little bit of clarity, okay? So that's what I did, right? <laughs> Free you up to do the same thing, you know? Um, and for me, specifically knowing this word in Matthew 5, verse 7, it brings a lot of clarity to what Jesus is saying because my initial understanding of this beatitude has always been this idea that I shouldn't punish people who deserve it. And in turn, I won't be punished later. That mercy is this idea of withholding punishment. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that is not what Jesus is saying. Mercy is this. Elios in Greek is this. Kindness and sympathetic pity that lead a person to action. Kindness and compassion that lead a person to action. 
So withholding punishment might be a, a type, a, a outcome of mercy, but withholding punishment isn't mercy. Mercy is this, this heart-wrenching thing that moves a person to action. Compassion and mercy, they're used interchangeably in the Bible, but they always carry with them that action, that movement, that call to arms. And, and Jesus knows this, and he tells this really famous parable about mercy. He, uh, this expert in the Jewish law comes to him, and he says, uh, okay, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you're an expert in the law. Like, what do you think? And this guy answers the perfect answer, Shema. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you need to love your neighbor as you would yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, that's actually right. Good answer. And then the guy's like, okay, but who, it says he wanted to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And with that, Jesus uh, responds like a lot of rabbis would. They tell a story. Jesus says there's this man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers and they, they beat him, they strip him of his clothes, they rob him and they leave him half dead. But good luck, a priest happens to be going down the same road. Priest. Knows the Lord, knows the Shema, probably said it earlier that morning and the priest is walking along and it says that he, he crossed the road and kept walking. Maybe put his eyes down Maybe he was late for something. But good luck again, because now a Levite is coming. A Levite, God's special people that he put off to the side to represent him, okay? A Levite's coming. And the Levite, Jesus says, does the same thing, crosses the road. Kind of ignores the situation that's going on. And then Jesus kind of uses this word that would have just boiled some people's bloods. It's the word Samaritan. Then a Samaritan is walking by. Everyone's, boo. But... Jesus says that the Samaritan saw the man and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion for him. And he went to him and he did a little roadside uh, first aid, poured oil and wine on his wounds and bandaged him up and put him on his own donkey and walked him to the nearest hotel and he paid all his expenses and as he was leaving, he said, hey, listen, uh, innkeeper, like whatever this guy needs, count it to me, I'll pay everything back. And at the end of this story, Jesus says to the man, okay, now you tell me, was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Which of these three men had, was a neighbor to the injured man? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, yeah, that's, that's right. Go, go and do likewise. The Bible doesn't tell us what the priest and the Levite felt as they walked by that injured man. Maybe they felt sorry for him, but they were not merciful toward him. And because mercy and compassion, they require action. They require doing something to alleviate the stress. This is the type of man that's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, who will be found in that blessing. The man who goes out of his way to care for the needs of another. Yeah, when it should have been the priest, when it should have been the Levite who are participating in the eternal life and the blessing of God, Jesus is telling this story to say that they're missing it. And it doesn't matter about your status. It matters about how your heart is moved. They have mercy. It re eternal life requires it. Jesus, that day on the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying to his followers, blessed are those who look out into the world, who see the hurt, who see the misery, who see the despair in people's lives. They're filled with compassion and they actually do something to relieve the hurt and the misery. Jesus says, Listen, if you love those who love you, 
That's what everybody does. That's not different. If you forgive those who forgive you, if you do good to those who are good to you, if you lend expecting to get repaid in full, like, yeah, that's what everyone does. He says, do something new. Be merciful. Be merciful because your heavenly father is merciful. Allow compassion. Allow pity for other people to move you into action. Just as your heavenly father looks out over his people and his heart is filled up and he moves to action. This is a characteristic we see of God all throughout the Bible. We could go to a lot of different places. As I was thinking about it, I wanted to see how God's mercy followed Israel. God sees Abraham and, uh, not Sarah, but Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant and Sarah hates her because of it. And God's like, what do I do? There's this boy now, what do I do with them? And God says, uh, listen to your wife. And Sarah says, get him out of here. And he sends him off into the wilderness, which is pretty much a death sentence. And the text says that God actually saw Hagar and Ishmael, and he moved in toward them, and he provided food and water, and he said, get up, go back to Abraham. I've got a hope for you. I've got a plan for you. God had mercy on them. God hears the cry of his people Israel as they're held as slaves in Egypt. He has compassion on them, makes a way for them to be delivered, splits the Red Sea. God sees his people wandering in the wilderness, starving and thirsty, and he makes water and food come up from all the places that water and food should not be coming out of in the desert. When they don't know how to live as free people because of all the years of slavery, he sees their misery. He sees their brokenness, how they're turning to everything to find significance and value. And God has compassion on them, and he gives them the law saying, this is how you should live in order to be my people. And God even sees years later as they're backsliding and turning away from the law. They're breaking the covenant. He has mercy on them by sending the prophets to tell them how to get back on track and to tell them about his end game, the Messiah is coming. God is merciful and Israel knew it. The psalmist sang of it over and over. You can just open up your Bible to the Psalms and I guarantee on that page somewhere is God, show mercy to me. Answer me when I call out to you, God. Relieve me from my distress. Have mercy on me. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy on me and lift me from the gates of death. Remember, Lord, your great mercy because they're ancient. They're from old. Turn to me. Have mercy on me as you always do to those who trust in your name. Time and time again, the Bible gives us examples of God's people in distress and in need. And time and time again, we see the heart of God fill up with compassion that leads to all sorts of deliverance and divine intervention. Yeah, there's plagues that break out and there's people that aren't rescued when they're in dire circumstance, but never when there's a cry for help and admission of guilt and need. The mercy of God is right there to lift that. And I just wanna take a second and just say like, okay, let's get our eyes on this merciful father. And just ask, if, is that how you know him? Is that what your, your natural like heart does when, you, when you're in a time of distress and need? Do you call out to him? Do you make your need known to him? Because I think honestly, like when I, in my own life, we don't, I don't do that. I think we're taught to just hide the garbage in our life, hide the need in our life, hide the distress in our life. 
We hide our weakness in distressing situations because we think that the brokenness and the chaos of our lives, like other people don't want to see that. And God for sure doesn't have time for that stuff. He doesn't want to see it. When in reality, God is waiting in the wings with mercy and compassion, waiting with all the power of heaven, waiting to hear the cry for help so he can show his love and show his rescuing ability. Micah 7 uh, verse 18 says that God actually delights in showing his mercy. What situation in your life could use a father like that, a father that loves doling out mercy left and right? Who could use a God like that? Who could use a little compassion from heaven? Where do you feel stuck? Where do you feel alone? Where are you in distress? Bring that to him. He's faithful. He's so willing to show compassions, his mercies. Like we say this, right? It's in greeting cards. The mercies of God, they're made new every morning. It's true. The mercy of God has never been more readily available to you than it is right now. It's not mercy from yesterday. It's not mercy from a year ago, stale and old. It's new mercy. God wants to meet you with compassion, meet you and have pity on you and pull you up out of distress. Even to the point where God got hands. He wanted feet He wanted to be able to walk in and draw close to those that are hurting and be the embodiment of mercy. Jesus is the embodiment of God's mercy. Every word he speaks is mercy, even as he speaks harshly and rebukes the Pharisees. The rebuking of a Pharisee, who knows what happens? Maybe that rebuke goes deep into that man's heart. And in the end, it leads to repentance. It leads to deliverance. It leads to uh, a freedom from self-righteousness and bondage that came from just being a part of this broken religious system. Maybe it humbles that man. And in doing so, it rescues him. If you want to know what the mercy of God is like, look look at Christ. Think about all the hurt and the distress that he met face to face. The blind, the deaf, the paralyzed, the poor, the dead, the sick, the lost, the humiliated, the outcast. Jesus meets every one of these circumstances head on with the mercy of heaven. He gives sight. He restores hearing. He strengthens feeble legs. He gives dignity to the poor. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He makes his home with the sinner and the outcast. So much so that the writers of the gospel, they can't help but say that when Jesus saw the crowds, he has compassion on them. His heart wells up because they're like a sheep without a shepherd. He looks at everyone through these compassionate, merciful eyes. He he disadvantages himself to pull us up from that misery. And this is the gospel of Jesus, that while we were sinners, while we were powerless to do anything, While we couldn't change our situation, we were alienated, isolated from God because of sin. God had mercy on us. He had compassion on us. He saw us like a sheep without a shepherd. He sent his son to Jesus to die a sinner's death on the cross. While we were in despair, while we were in distress, God's heart was moved to action. Christ came to rescue us out of that. He was mocked, humiliated to bear our reproach. He was beaten to take our shame. He died to give his life as a ransom for many. And in doing so, he's acting out of his nature, his character. His heart was stirred and he couldn't help but come from heaven to rescue us. God has gone to such great lengths to make his mercy known to us. 
He loves us. And now God is saying, listen, church, have you experienced my mercy, even a taste of it? Have you seen it enter your own life? Then let's go. I'm, God is looking for ambassadors. He's looking for people that can wear his name, who can take with him this type of mercy. God is saying as men and women filled with his Holy Spirit, that we then ought to be merciful as the Father is merciful. That we ought to allow mercy to be the hallmark of our life. That bitterness and resentment would be met with forgiveness. That judgment would take a back seat to compassion and pity. That hugs and embraces and I'm sorry's and your forgivens would replace eye rolls forever. To be merciful like Jesus was merciful in our words, in our actions. We ought to be filled with the compassion when we see the hurt, when we see the brokenness. We ought to do everything in our power to step in and help. That's what mercy is. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this out of my own like, thoughts. Like God says it. What do I require of you? What, oh man, does God require of you? You know it. Micah 6, 8. To act in a just way. To love mercy. And to walk humbly before him. Mercy for our friends that have hurt us. Our family members that we keep at arm's length. It starts right there. Remember that Jesus isn't preaching this message to an extremely affluent people who could sway national opinion or who are high up in the religious system or who could make huge financial contributions. He's preaching to people like us. He just called four people out of a boat and said, hey, fishermen, you're my disciples now. He went into the city and he, he like healed the sick and the paralyzed and the demon-possessed. And Matthew chapter four says all these people started following him. Sometimes when we read uh, Matthew 5 and it says that Jesus began to teach his disciples, we think the 12 disciples. When in reality, the 12 disciples aren't even the, the 12 until Matthew chapter 10. And so the disciples that Matthew is writing about, they're those people, the destitute, the outcast, the sick, the hurting, the fishermen. People that might not have like this massive global effect, but who can have a huge difference in their immediate surroundings, their immediate relationships. Be merciful. The law of God commands it. The wisdom of God teaches it. The prophets, they point to it. The, the psalmist, they worship it. And Jesus comes as an embodiment of it. Mercy and compassion are who we're meant to be as image bearers of God into this world. Is that you? Is that me? Are, are merciful and compassionate words that other people would use to define your life? Or like the priest or the Levite, are we, are we turning our eyes to the ground and crossing the street and walking in a different direction when we see people who are hurting or in need? See family members. The place to start is by allowing Christ to meet your chaos and your brokenness, not trying to have everything together in his presence. It's never gonna work. You end up being like the, the Pharisee that Jesus points to when he says, look at these two people praying. The Pharisee lifts his head to heaven 
God, thank you that I'm not like the rest of these. That's a person who's hiding his brokenness, who's hiding his chaos. That's me a lot of times. And right next to this man is, a, is, is another man who's praying. And he's on his knees. And the text says he can't look up to heaven. And he beats his breast. And he says, God, would you extend your mercy to me right now? I'm a sinner. And I'm in need of it. That's how we start. How do we start to have the mercy of God living in us and flowing through us to offer unreal kindness and forgiveness to people? It starts by allowing God to fill us with his own mercy and kindness. I want you guys this morning to take a little time to just ask the Holy Spirit to, to remind you of the goodness of God in your life, to remind you how he's called you out of that dark place, to remind you how at some point in your life you went from being alienated from God to being a child of God. And that moment, think about that moment. Think about how God's mercy reached you in that moment. Ask Holy Spirit, show me that and, and remind me of that so I can be your mercy to those around me. You know, at first I was scared because it's the merciful that receive mercy, the same word thing, but the more I think about it, the more I love that it's mercy is the reward for a merciful person. I love that there's this viral thing about mercy, this snowball effect. It starts rolling and picking up speed and mass. And as we receive mercy from God, it enables us to give mercy to each other. And as we give mercy out as currency for our lives, we receive mercy back when we need it, in this age and in the age to come. And I just wanna say, church, like me included, like let's get on this mercy train. Let's be a church who's known for compassion toward each other. Let's look for ways that we can step into the distress of someone else's life and use what resources we have to lift them up. I wanna, I wanna extend our eyes to the city. But it can't go there yet until this room is full of people that are full of God's mercy. And I don't know, like, I mean, church sometimes is, is big and nasty sometimes, you know? There could be people in this room who have withheld mercy from you. There could be people in this room that you're withholding mercy from. And yeah, we can extend it to people that we don't know. But what about people in our lives right now this morning that we do know? Be the mercy of God. Allow compassion, allow pity to move you up out of that chair and to move you into action. Be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Let's pray. God, we do uh, thank you. Thank you for the way that you've called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. You didn't have to do that. Thank you that your heart time and time again is stirred to compassion and you move towards us, God. There's probably a thousand different situations in this room that could use your uh, rescue, Lord. And I just pray that into each one of those situations, God, that you would, you would step in, move in and rescue. And God, would you make us a people that, mo that model that, that mirror that, that embody your mercy, God. Take our, our hard-heartedness, Lord, our averted eyes, and, and, and we submit them to you. We say, Potter, would you shape us and mold us to embody your mercy?
In Jesus' name, amen.